This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to discuss uh, the nature of Sunbelt politics, culture, and society in the United States. The Sunbelt is a term that historians, political pundits, and many others have used now for, for quite a while. We're going to explore uh, what this term means and uh, what this region of the country, uh, what role it's played in our society over the last 50 to 70 years, and what role it plays today and might play tomorrow in the evolution of our democracy. We have with us uh, one of the foremost scholars of this region, uh, someone who's done some of the pioneering work on understanding uh, Sunbelt politics and society. Uh, that's uh, Michelle Nickerson. Uh, Michelle is an associate professor of history at Loyola University of Chicago. She, te she teaches the history of American politics, women and gender, cities and religion. So she covers a wide range of issues, uh, but she's not from the Sun Belt. She wanted us to make sure we made that clear. She was born in New Jersey or where I grew up in New York, Jersey, we call it, uh, where she got her undergraduate degree at Rutgers University. She moved to the Sun Belt after she finished her Ph.D. work at Yale. Uh, first to do research in Los Angeles and then to teach at the University of Texas at Dallas. Uh, Nickerson's first book, Michelle's first book, uh, is a volume of essays uh, called Sunbelt Rising that she co-edited uh, with Darren Doshuk, and that has a, a variety of scholars contributing to understanding the politics of space, place, and region. And Michelle's uh, sole-authored uh, first book, uh, which is really a groundbreaking book, uh, is titled Mothers of Conservatism, Women and the Rise of the Post-War Right. Michelle was one of the first scholars really to get into the role of grassroots uh, women's activism in the rise of uh, right-wing politics in the Sun Belt uh, during the Cold War, a book that really uh, reshaped the way I think about the period and many others. Uh, so we're very lucky to have uh, Michelle uh, with us today. Thank you for joining us, Michelle. Thank you. It's great to be here, uh, Jeremy, and thanks for the kind introduction. Well, uh, it's it's so so kind and wonderful for you to join us, and really a lot of fun to have you on. Uh, and we're going to turn, of course, to our scene-setting poem from Zachary to start us. Uh, you have a sonnet today, I understand, Zachary, yes? Yes. What's the title? Sonnet for the Sun Belt. Let's hear it. In arid desert lies between the towns, the bison that fell and the native men, who often felt the bullets ceaseless rounds, and hope the migrants crossed the oceans then. And from the desert, desert states were born, with dams that held the rivers back for good, with suburbia and the strip mall's thorn, and yearning kids stood among mesquite wood. And from the cacti flows the water spring, the neocons reach out from Midwest lakes to find dry heavens in the highway ring, slick border control in a desert of snakes. But now the faces change, so do the votes, and hark, new peoples come on hope-filled boats. I, I love the range of issues you touch on there. Uh, what is your poem really about, Zachary? My poem is really about the societal and cultural makeup of the Sun Belt, how dynamic it is and how it's changed dramatically over the past century or so. Well, that's really the perfect introduction to uh, Michelle's groundbreaking work. Uh, uh, Michelle, what do scholars like yourself and political pundits mean when they refer to the Sun Belt? What are we talking about? 
Well, first, I want to say to Zachary, that was incredible. Can you please send me a copy of that? Of course. Uh, and then I thank you. So um, scholars have been writing about the Sun Belt uh, really for several decades now. And we tend to think of it as a region that's born out of the political economic circumstances of the post-World War II era. And uh, when I first wrote about this, I and my co-editor, Darren Dochuk, thought it was more useful to think about the Sun Belt less as a regional concept than a conceptual region. And by that, I mean that it's born of ideologies from the time period, uh, I, ideologies uh, that basically govern political and economic relations in that place. For example, um, the earliest part of the Sun Belt, uh, and, and by that, when I, when I say Sun Belt, I mean the southern rim of the United States, the states that go from, say, uh, North Carolina, south to Florida, across to uh, Arizona and, and California. But I have to be very careful about that because as a region, like all regions, it's not set in stone. You can't look at a map and really see any clear boundaries because with regions, boundaries are shifting all the time. And, and in many cases, well, in most cases, uh, they're they're created in the mind. They represent people's understanding of place and space. Nevertheless, um, that is still very historically important. So when we talk about the Sun Belt as a conceptual region, we're talking about a place born after World War II, um, where people there and institutions tended to promote economic growth. Uh, they tend to be suspicious of centralized power. They had faith in low taxation. They tended to lack faith in unions. Um, they were suspicious of government regulation, especially regulation from the federal government. Um, it's a region that's defined also by migration, by the flow of people coming from the northern part of the United States to take advantage of these political economic circumstances. Um, also, it's about uh, the Sun Belt was a place where there was a lot of trust in boosters and in economic boosters, mainly um, businessmen and politicians who wanted to create laws and policies that would promote growth, uh, economic growth. It's a place also where you saw an enthusiasm for evangelical religion, Christian religion, mm -hmm. where kind of the mainline churches of uh, earlier periods tended to have less power than these newer churches. Uh, it was really on the forefront of uh, mega church development, and uh, it's a place where economic, excuse me, where political conservatism was really born as a movement, uh, in the sense that it, it took off and tended to dominate the politics of these places really as you're coming out of the 1950s. Um, and the last thing I want to mention is that the Sun Belt is really defined more by the spaces of uh, metropolitan areas rather than the states themselves. So we often talk about Sun Belt states, let's say like where you are in Texas or California, but it is as much 
about really, or more so about the development of Houston in this period in Dallas and Austin and, and let's say Los Angeles or Phoenix than it is so much about what's happening at the level of state government, although that is, of course, also important and we can get to that. And, and what role, Michelle, uh, has the federal government played? Because one of the really interesting insights, it seems to me, from the scholarship is that, as you said, many of the residents of these areas uh, are critical of taxation and critical of the New Deal. But at the same time, if, if I understand the scholarship, they're, they're recipients of disproportionate federal supports. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, and on a couple of fronts, first of all, uh, the influx of dollars that go to the military-industrial complex after World War II, um, with the expansion of defense spending and the U.S. military, uh, much of that money went to companies that are in the Sun Belt, uh, companies like Lockheed Martin, for example. And so people moved to these regions to work for those companies or work for um, companies that uh, basically derived from that particular economy, like subsidiary companies. So you had, for example, a lot of engineers uh, who moved from the Midwest to Los Angeles to take care of those benefits. The other thing that happened was the, the divestment of federal lands uh, that went to places like uh, Phoenix and, and other Sunbelt regions where uh, companies and governments managed to get from the federal government cheap land so that they could develop. Um, and then third, you, you might also know that there are many indigenous nations in the Sun Belt, like the Navajo. And there are ways in which the federal government and the state governments managed to capture um, a lot of the, the energy that came out of those places and divert it to the metropolitan regions that benefited economically. So, so yes, disproportionately, um, the Sun Belt in this time period was was getting money from the federal government. And so, yeah, there's um, kind of a disconnect there in how people understand their own relationship with the federal government. On the one hand, uh, there is a lot of protest against federal power. Um, and then it, on the other hand, there was a huge interest and effort in getting resources from the federal government. And and just so we're clear, who, who are the people we're talking about here? As, as you made it clear in your response right now, it's obviously not the, the native residents of the region who, who are the drivers of change. Who, who are the real drivers of change in the region in this period? Well, there are many drivers of change, and it depends on um, what community and what level of government that you're talking about. So you and I right now are talking about the rise of conservatism mainly in this period uh, and the power of uh, metropolitan governments and also um, boosters who were promoting growth. So when we're talking, the people that we're talking about would be prominent businessmen like Barry Goldwater in Phoenix, Arizona, who eventually runs for senator and and he comes to lead the movement. Um, so these would be, you know, people who 
had money and influence, many of whom moved there. Uh, there was an anti-fair uh, housing movement in Los Angeles uh, that was very popular. Of course, the leader of which is totally escaping my mind at the moment. Um, but they tended to be, in this period, Republican. And uh, they tended to basically leverage the power that they had um, through their companies. And, and what about uh, your work on, on women? Uh, what role did women and, and, other, and minorities and other groups play outside of the, the circle of largely white businessmen? Um, so this is the other part of the story, right? Uh, women began to exert a great deal of power and so did non-white people. Um, so for women... Basically, as you know, this is the period, you know, when we're talking about the 1950s and 60s, we're talking about the decades before the women's liberation movement, where there was attention to feminism again um, and real activist power behind it. But in the 50s, with the interest in local development and uh, kind of the politics of the community, people in the Sun Belt gave a great deal of authority to women because women stepped forward uh, in the interests of their own local neighborhoods and communities. And other people were ready to kind of give them that power. So women uh, had a lot of power in school politics. Uh, They had a lot of power in marshalling resources uh, towards Uh, the development of things like playgrounds uh, and other resources for children. Uh, This is partly because, well, there were many women who had those resources. They were, you know, married to men who had money or they they came from families with money. These were mostly white women who, uh, in many cases, immigrated from other parts of the country. And many of them had university education. Either they started college or they finished college. Uh, Some of the women I actually studied for my book had graduate degrees. Um, But they were, these were women who took their roles as housewives and mothers seriously. Um, For a time, they stepped away from their role in the workplace to raise their children. Um, But they were smart. They had the economic resources and they had the will to step in and participate in these politics at the very local level at a time when people took local politics really seriously. So, you know, that's the story of, of mainly white women. At the same time, there were women in, like, let's say Los Angeles, the Mexican-American community, who were doing the same things for their own neighborhoods. So uh, they themselves were going out and making sure that their their children had, uh, you know, had had schools. They were active in fights against uh, segregation. They um, they were there. You know, I'm thinking about women, for example, in the Boyle Heights neighborhood of Los Angeles or in um, Monterey, California where they, they got very involved uh, on behalf of the safety of their children. And just as the other communities, uh, women were given the authority to do that and participate 
at the local level in a very intense way. Um, it's not surprising that women stepped onto the, the school board in Los Angeles at this time period in the Los Angeles Unified School District. Um, and we're stepping into um, positions of, of local government at the time. Uh, and this is happening in all kinds of communities. Once upon a time, historians called this type of activism maternalism. But I tend to think of it dis- differently, what I call um, in my book, housewife populism, mm-hmm. because these were not women who were using their class position to kind of reach down and help people who had less privilege than them, um, which is a very kind of progressive era tradition. On the contrary, these are women who are fighting for their own communities. They see their communities in some way as being endangered and in needing of their protection. Uh, And for white women conservatives, this meant protecting their communities against what they called big government or the the intervention of the federal government. So, um, so that's kind of where we see women. And then in terms of other communities, uh, there are, there's a great deal of civil rights activism that's happening alongside the conservative activism I talk about. And literally, I mean, right alongside. So I focus on Los Angeles County in my book. And it's, I I talk about the Los Angeles County of the conservative movement. At the same time, there's a tremendous amount of radical and civil rights politics happening in that very same place um, that becomes just as important to American politics. So, um, for example, it's Los Angeles where we saw in as early as 1947, the Mendez versus Westminster decision, which banned segregation in um, schools that were predominantly Mexican. Uh, In Texas, it was 1954 when we saw the Hernandez versus Texas decision that determined that a Mexican-American man had a right to a jury of his own peers. So there is, there's a tremendous amount of energy in civil rights politics in, in the period and region we're talking about. What makes it different, I would say, or and the way in which we might recognize this as kind of a development in the Sun Belt is that it tended to be multiracial. So the freedom struggle in the South at this time was mainly uh, what we understood to be for the rights of African-Americans in that period, um, which was of course so important. And you might even think about it again in terms of what we see happening at this very moment with Black Lives Matter. In the Sun Belt, uh, people were advocating for many of the same rights, um, but they were doing this in uh, different ethnic communities, whether it be uh, Mexican-American, indigenous, Asian American communities. And so that's one of the things that uh, was important in the Sun Belt. Also, uh, like in Los Angeles, you saw the emergence of multi-ethnic and racial organizing for things like fair housing. Um, So people working in their own communities and then across communities uh, to secure better conditions and services and rights. This is a really important point, Michelle, about the, in a sense, coterminous development development of conservative politics and multiracial civil rights politics, uh, quite literally, as you said, next to one another in this region. Why is it that the Republican Party was able to capitalize on these 
uh, dual uh, developments more than the Democratic Party? Why did this region produce the Reagan Revolution, uh, as it was called? And to this day, maybe it's changing now. We're going to talk about this in a few minutes. It's it's been the, the heart of the Republican Party. Why is that? So um, coming out of World War II, the Republican Party was based in New York, right? Uh, this was the party of Nelson Rockefeller. Right. Uh, right. But then, as I mentioned before, there was so much development in the Sunbelt states, and they accumulated so much economic power that uh, the Republican Party didn't quite know how to reckon with this. The Republican Party was becoming the party of, uh, let's say, less government. It was the party that was actually protecting segregation from um, the civil rights movement at the time. And for that reason, the Republican Party uh, was itself becoming less trusting of federal power and authority. And so what you see happening is that the the ideology of the Sun Belt is now uh, aligning more with what's happening in the Republican Party. There are like, for example, many Southern Democrats that are leaving the Democratic Party um, because they don't support civil rights, they don't support desegregation. They wanted more local control over these issues. They wanted more state control over these issues. They did not like the Supreme Court decisions that were being hoisted upon them uh, in the name of desegregation and integration. So what happens is when you com- when you combine that with the emergence of economic power, um, people like Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan managed to take control of the party. So the party that once belonged to Eisenhower and was moderate moving into the 1950s then becomes the party of conservatives as you're moving into the 1960s. It's no coincidence that conservatism becomes an actual movement with a name at the end of the 1950s. Um, And this is largely because of Barry Goldwater's book, Conscience of a Conservative, where people came to see themselves as somebody with that name. They they adopted it as a political identity, and it, it developed kind of a movement energy. And so then Los Angeles really replaces New York as kind of the home base of the Republican Party. Uh, coming into the like the nineteen the end of the nineteen sixties and into the nineteen seventies, also the the power of evangelicals in the party. Evangelical religion is so strong in the Sun Belt, and it manages to become the actual site for much of the grassroots organizing behind the movement. Um, figures like Phyllis Schlafly, for example, who uh, started the anti ERA campaign, the very successful anti-ERA campaign. Um, She manages to make churches themselves kind of the the organizing base of a lot of this politics. And it's kind of out of that that energy and mobilizing that we see the emergence of the religious right. So all of these things uh, make republicanism powerful in the Sun Belt and ultimately nationally as well. 
uh, it seems in recent years we've seen a really dramatic political shift in the Sun Belt. What are the political trends that have shaped the Sun Belt in the past 20 years or so? Zachary, that is a really good point. I'm glad you asked me that because I'm not so sure that the Sun Belt works as much for helping us to understand politics after 1980. So I mentioned before that the Sun Belt, like all regions, are conceptual. Um, it's a way that people understand the the importance of of space and place. Um, and it's important for us to understand history. But we also need to understand that regions are historically bound, uh, that the Sun Belt really doesn't make any sense if we're trying to understand, let's say, the 19th century. And for that reason, once we get beyond 1980, I, I don't think that it has so much value um, for helping us to to understand politics and um, economics. That said, I do think there's uh, there are things that are happening in this part of the nation that become important for the United States overall. First of all, there's the importance of the border. Okay, so coming out of 1980. Um, many Americans become way more concerned about um, people crossing the border and taking jobs and interfering with the rights of native-born people. This has a lot to do with um, immigration laws that are passed in the 1960s and the way in which we come to regard immigrants from Latin America, especially Mexico. And so um, for that reason, the the local and state uh you know, the, the politicians and government officials, they tend to work more closely and fight over the border. Um, the other thing is uh, the ways in which um, evangelical religion after 1970, uh, it, it tends to take on a more economic ideology as, as part of its theology. So, there is, uh, in, in coming out of many churches and evangelical communities, a kind of um, pro-business and growth spirituality. Um, and this is very powerful in uh, Sunbelt in, in Sun states, like where you are, for example. I'm thinking of like T.G. Jakes um, in, in Dallas and uh, his Potter's House Church, where... Um, much of the the theology itself is is bent towards self actualization, and also self actualization is a form of economic progress. Um, you know, it it celebrates wealth and development, um, and that really hangs on uh, after 1980 and becomes important. Um, and I also think that the, the multiracial and multi-ethnic organizing established in the Sun Belt after, let's say, 1950 becomes more the case in the rest of the nation. So there's a way in which I think um, much of America tends, has tended to learn from that, um, and it becomes more of a, a national trend. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we and my co-authors argued about argued about when we were discussing the Sun Belt was, well, is Seattle a Sun Belt city? What about Denver? Uh, and it 
it, there's a way in which many of these metropolitan regions after 1980 tend to mirror the developments that we saw in the Sunbelt uh, before that year and really bring into question the value of understanding politics and economics and even culture through a Sunbelt lens after 1980. It, it's, a, it's a really uh, helpful answer, Mich- Michelle. It does strike me that uh, the Sunbelt region that produces these Cold War communities that support Republican politics, Phoenix, Arizona being a, a clear example, Houston, Texas, another, Los Angeles, uh, they become, after the 1980s, they actually become very multiracial, uh, progressive uh, areas. Almost all the large metropolitan regions of the Sun Belt now uh, vote against the Republican Party. Uh, if you think about Texas, if you think about the changes in Phoenix, I mean, so is, is, do you see that as a continuation of Sun Belt politics? How do you fit that into the narrative? This is so important, Jeremy. Um, so I think what we're seeing right now, um, and let's say Orange County is the classic example. You know, think about the Orange County of Lisa McGurr's book right. um, and then the Orange County of, uh, you know, the after the millennium. So what I think happened is that um, at the local level, Sunbelt cities drew all kinds of people, not just white conservatives. And they themselves, like if you look at Houston and you look at Los Angeles, these are these communities are now more diverse than places like Milwaukee um, and even where I live in Chicago. And then um, out of this kind of mix of uh, ethnic politics emerges new leaders. Um, it shouldn't surprise us, for example, especially uh, after our discussion of women in the Sunbelt after 1950, that we're seeing so many women become mayors of these cities and, and leaders in official political positions that they didn't have in the 1950s. Also, many non-white government officials, for the same reasons, are taking charge. Um, and so in many ways, this is kind of the realization of the, 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 the migration and the, and the changes and all of the things that, that drew many different people to Sunbelt cities and metropolitan areas. They drew people from within the United States and from across the border. And I don't just mean the border into Mexico. I mean, they're drawing people from across the Pacific Rim um, and other parts of the world as well. It's it's such an extraordinary story. Uh, having grown up in New York City, I, I remember having conversations with old friends a few years ago about the challenges of um, bringing uh, new communities into politics and how hard it was to convince people in New York, my old friends, Michelle, that Houston in many ways had more progressive politics than New York City. Uh, for example, Houston, Texas uh, had a, a lesbian mayor uh, before any other major city in the United States. And, and it makes sense considering the historical dynamics you've described, but of course it runs against our stereotypes of these regions. In some ways, our stereotypes are of the old Sun Belt, not what the region is becoming. Uh, how should young activists, this is, this is really where we wanted to conclude today, how should young activists who care about uh, Black Lives Matter and many other uh, progressive developments in our society, and, and those perhaps on the other side, how should they think about this region? What what role can they play 
either as actors in this region or as people appealing to this region? Where, where do you see the future of the of politics of this region going? Well, first, Jeremy, I want to step back a minute to that conversation with, that you had with your friends in New York City. This question of why is Houston as a city so progressive? And you know, this was my experience in Dallas as well. Dallas, when I lived there, was a city that voted for Democrats. Um, but that was not the case for the suburbs of Dallas. And the suburbs of Houston are another story altogether. Um, and this has a lot to do with the problem of where these metro- metropolitan regions fit into l- the larger landscape of power in their states and at the national level. So in the state of Texas right now, a city like Houston, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio can be a majority Democrat and it can have um, a really rich tradition of progressive politics, yet that doesn't translate at the state level. And it doesn't necessarily translate at the federal level as, as well. And so when we're, when we're talking to you know, a younger generation about why that is and how it, how it needs to change, we need to think about um, the problem of democratic institutions right now, which are, are really troubled. Um, and the role that the Black Lives Matter movement, and by that I mean the energy, the momentum right now, that's coming from the generation that started that movement and that leads that movement. Um, it's really important, and it really should remind us of the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s and the power that it can have. But what it needs to do, I think, is focus on reforming these problematic institutions. So first of all, I think that we all have a lesson to learn from those Sunbelt conservatives um, who managed to take a lot of their resources and put it into um, the mechanisms of state-level power. So think of um, ALEC or the Koch brothers and the way they focused so much of their energy on state legislatures while the Democrats and other progressives were looking at swing states and the presidency. And for that reason, I think that, uh, you know, Tom DeLay, for example, from Sugarland, managed to lead the, the gerrymandering campaign. So one of the things that needs to happen is that uh, progressives need to focus on reversing gerrymandering. They need to focus on restoring voting rights. And and once things change at the state level with state legislators and governors, then they can do things like think about a 28th Amendment to, to secure voting rights and stop voter suppression. Um, we need to kind of reverse a lot of these changes that made us less democratic at all of these levels. Um, we need people to vote more and to get in there and assure that other people can vote, to take voting seriously. I don't know about you, but when I talk to students in my classes, they are so frustrated with uh, the institutions of government right now. And for that reason, many of them didn't even vote in uh, 2016 and in other elections. And they tell me I'm, you know, I'm ridiculous to, to be working so hard to get people out to vote because they don't think that voting matters. Well, 
you know, it's time to take that seriously as a way to, um, to, to reform the institutions of democratic life uh, that have interfered with, um, with their own rights and everybody else's rights at the same time. And so um, that would be the lesson that I, I would take from the Sunbelt, um, what I would describe as the Sunbelt era of American history after 1950. Uh, Michelle, that's that's so powerful, uh, not the least bit ridiculous. It's incredibly inspiring, in fact, and fits with the main themes of our podcast. Uh, what you've shown in your work and in your in your really brilliant overview of that work today is is how the the Sun Belt and the changes in the Sun Belt in some ways contributed to changes in our institutions that undermined uh, some of the values of democracy that that that. Uh, we hold so dear, uh, con- especially contributing to gerrymandering and powerful business interests uh, that have always been part of our democracy, but maybe operated in a new way as a consequence. And that learning the lessons of that history can help us to see where we need to reform and change those institutions again, particularly working at the state level. As you were speaking, I was thinking about the ways in which some many of these Sunbelt states opened so quickly uh, during the, corona- the early weeks of the coronavirus. Yes. Uh, and, and we're seeing the consequences of that today. Who were they responding to? Who was the governor of Texas responding to? Not to the citizens of Austin and Dallas and Houston, but to those same business interests and others that, that came to powerful positions during the period you studied. And, and that's something we need to address. I, I think that's at the center of your work, isn't it? It is so interesting to me <laughs> that, uh, you know, obviously we're talking about this now because it's in the midst of this pandemic that I'm... I'm looking at these maps and these articles and thinking, oh my God, there still is a sunbelt. And uh, it gets to, I think, exactly what you're talking about is this the suspicion of state authorities to interfere with the interests of business. Um, I think it was, was it a hairdresser in Dallas that brought so much attention to the yes, way she yes. was treated by authorities? Okay, that, I think that's the perfect example of um, the way in which, sure, I mean, I think that people should rally around their local businesses, but the way in which people sort of um, pitch this as uh, a conflict between the health of the economy and small business versus the authority of the state to come in and impose rules, I thought to myself, Yes. Okay. Also, you know, you have a governor in Texas who is like a direct line from George W. Bush. Uh, And so the ways in which um, Greg Abbott waited so long to enforce masks, I think, goes back to this era uh, from which he derived his own thinking and his power. Um, The other thing, I don't know about you, but um, I, I... I think I hate to use seasons and temperature as a way to understand uh, the distinctions of the sun melt, but you know when we were in lockdown, uh, when everybody was in lockdown, I think that here in Chicago we were suffering in particular, and our numbers were going so high perhaps because we were all indoors in March and April, and I think that in Texas and other states. Uh, across the South, it was, you know, the, the temperature was was very mild. And, and so people could do what they needed to do outdoors. Um, 
And so the virus itself, I think, didn't inflict as much punishment and have an impact as it did in the northern states. And now, in many ways, that's reversed. You're in the midst of super summer in Texas. And so everybody is confined in these air-conditioned places with poor ventilation. Um, and the rest of the nation is kind of spreading out, doing what they need to do outside. They don't feel as trapped. Um, and so I think that also might have something to do with it. It's absolutely correct. And the, the frustrating thing, and it, it comes right back to your, your core point about the changes in the Sun Belt uh, over time, is that uh, most uh, health experts were predicting exactly this d- development, but yet the politics that carry over from really from, as you say, from the 1980s and 90s were of deep suspicion in many of these Sunbelt states toward the health experts. And, and that suspicion of expertise, which I think is built into the housewife populism that you're talking about, um, yes. I, I think yeah. that... that that contributed, uh, and 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 it's it's almost as if we're we're living through a pattern that is so historically predictable, but yet it seems this is your point about frustration. Until we reform our institutions, we can't get out of this pattern. Oh, uh, this is something that we just didn't talk about, but yeah, the fusion of medical and medical expertise and federal government power is something that people become suspicious of after 1950, and you're seeing it again right now. Zachary, uh, this is a lot uh, of really uh, meaty and sophisticated material that Michelle has given us here, but she's also so brilliantly connected to our contemporary politics. Do you, do you find this empowering for young uh, citizens like yourself who believe in reform, who care deeply about it? Is, is, is thinking about Sunbelt politics in this way, is it helpful for you moving forward and how? I think it definitely is, and I would say the main way is that it shows us how important local political activism away from centers of political power is. And I th- and one more thing I'd like to add too is that we've seen a, a vast increase in immigration and, democra- and demographic shifts in this region in the past 20 years or so, and I think that's going to be really powerful because instead of relying on old ideas of, of whiteness and of suburban uh, politics in the United States and particularly in some belt states, I think that young people have grown up around people who look very different from them and have very different political ideologies. And I think young people are beginning to finally grasp that politics is not necessarily rooted in our race or in where we live. And I think that's something that the Sun Belt is, is actually going to teach us in the next few few decades. Well, and on all of this uh, echoes, I think, one of the central lessons of American history, which is that there is a cyclical process at work, I think. And, and uh, Michelle has uncovered so, for us. Yeah, please. Can I just respond to Zachary? Please. So I think what uh, Zachary said is so important. Also, um, you know, please excuse me, Zachary, if I'm pinning something on you, but, you know, this kind of okay boomer uh, attitude of millennials and Gen Z towards the, um, towards the older generation, um, I think is kind of something that is quite prevalent right now and important. Um, at the same time, I would urge... Uh, people to to just kind of look at themselves um, and what they're thinking uh, when they are questioning the authority and the whiteness of the uh, of the boomer generation. So, for example, one of the things that's inspired me. I I study radicals now. That's a whole other story. But one of the people that I studied from the anti Vietnam War era. As a retired person, he is now 
very much involved with the movement against gerrymandering in Pennsylvania. He wouldn't say it. His name's Keith Forsyth. But I think he, he's been on the forefront to undo that trend and quite successfully in Pennsylvania. I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from activists of earlier periods, even if you don't accept their authority or question their authority. So, um, so I urge people to, to go into these progressive movements um, with confidence, but also to evaluate their, their attitudes um, about other people as they go into it. Um, I think that can be really healthy. I think that's a perfect note to close on. Uh, Michelle, thank you for not just your uh, historical wisdom based on deep research, but also on your passion for uh, democratic and progressive change today and and for the really powerful ways you connect your historical scholarship to uh, contemporary political reform. That's that's what our podcast is all about, and you embody that uh, so well. So thank you for joining us today, Michelle. Thank you, Jeremy. This was really exciting and such a pleasure. Um, Take care. Thank you. Thank you, Zachary, as well. And of course, thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.